firstly, I guess I wanted to um, ask you, Vernon, um, to, to go back I don't know, uh, 15 odd years um, a little bit to the, the um, I guess, the start of your practice and the use of text and I guess how that evolved. Um, it wasn't something that was commonly used, uh, particularly in an indigenous artist practice at the time. Uh, but I remember quite vividly um, uh, the If I Was White show at PCA. Um, so if you could take me back to, take us back to, to that point and how text became a part of your work. Geez, we must be going about, back about 15 kilos, actually. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's going back a bit. So, yeah, I, I was aware that, um, See, when, when I was in high school, um, I, I'm not sure, but um, I, I, I was aware of, as an Aboriginal young blackfellow who wanted to learn how to draw properly, and I could, I could draw pretty well when I was at school, in primary school, and, um, but, I, but I, was, I, I was aware of Trevor Nichols, who... Um, him and him and um, Kevin Gilbert, really, I, I regard as the kind of, you know, the godfathers of of what 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 is termed urban Aboriginal art. But Trevor Nichols was a was a guy who um, who didn't seem to have any rules. The best kind, best kind of artist, who um, who who kind of just thought, well, oh, just say what I want in any kind of medium that I want to say it in. And, um, and so if, if it wasn't for him, and, and to a certain extent, um, there's two things. There's, there's Tracy Moffat's um, Something More and Scarred for Life photo essays, where uh, I, I felt like I had permission as a Aboriginal person wanting to make art to kind of go hard, and then there was um, Gordon Bennett, who uh, who who used text, um, who was very kind of um, very studious in his in the way he went about constructing his ideas and then then applying them, and it was very very method methodological and very process driven way to go about making art. And so all of those sort of things kind of gave me permission um, to kind of just do whatever I liked and to, to utilise whatever tools I thought I could develop within myself and what was available. And then when I, when I was in um, undergrad at QCA, uh, we had a project where we would, um, where we had to kind of just think of um, like a poster. Uh, and, and propaganda, and and I was thinking like, oh yeah, you know, like letter drops, like they did in World War Two, where they would just do up these flyers and drop them from planes and those sort of things, and um, <clears throat> and and I was thinking of, um, and also uh, the White Rose movement in in Europe with in Germany with um, Sophie Scholl, and they would what what led to her, her death when she threw all those um, 
pamphlets off the balcony in the art school. And I, uh, I just thought, oh yeah, that, that sort of thing, that, that's how full on this kind of propagandist kind of approach to things was. And so I start researching, looking at, at posters and, and the way posters are constructed and the, and the whole idea of um, design and that. Because I did a year of design before I did fine art over, over at QCA. And, um, and then, um, and I'd always liked design, but then I, I kind of came across um, constructivism. And, uh, and how in Russian constructivism had been pared down to just text. And, and once you pare down to text, um, you can do whatever you like with it. The only concern I had was that it had to be legible, which, is, which I think, um, which is what I like about graffiti, um, when it's done properly, is, uh, is, is the best kind. It's, it's some of the best kinds of propaganda, uh, best way to communicate, uh, but it's it's when you it's when a lot of graffiti artists they want to individualise what they do and you can't read the work, and I understand that it's it's cryptic and and always glyph in its form, and they they're trying to kind of develop a secret code where they talk to each other in their works. That's cool. Do it in private then. Have a little secret society. That's cool. I don't mind that. But, um, but that doesn't stop it from being art, it just stops it from being communication, which is what we're all in the game for. So I discovered Russian constructivism and the way that, that those posters, posters especially, were, were built and decided then and there, that's what I wanted to do. And, um, and so I kind of got carried away. I remember I did, uh, I post-graded in, in an honours year and it was all text work. And I remember my, my um, assessment show for my honours year was awesome, fantastic, and, but, it, but it was also all text. And, um, and like a lot of people would be aware that I, I have um, reasonably good drawing skills, but I, I kind of shifted them. I just kind of put them on the back burner and I was completely into text. And that whole, and also, because um, I was a screen printer too for, for years, and I liked the machine aesthetic that, that you know, is applied to text all the time. And uh, yeah, and that's, that's how that started. And so, and I've always thought, well, you know, if you want to say something, then you can do it like this, because Gordon Bennett does it. And, and if you want to say something, you can do it like this, because, you know, Tracy Moffat used text in her work, and. And, uh, and why can't I just use text then? So, so that's how it all started. And the, if I was white, um, I was kind of into uh, race construction and reading things about race. And, uh, and, and, and also like um, not immersing myself in it, but taking pieces here and there and getting carried away with it. And, um, and uh, becoming angry about it all and uh, and, um, and, and being, and also a lot of my thinking back then in the 90s uh, was underpinned by um, Kevin Gilbert's book, Because a White Man Will Never Do It. And, uh, and I had read, um, and before I read Because a White Man Will Never Do It, I had read um, uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X as well. And so, and then reading uh, 
things about race theory and race construction uh, kind of um, sent me off the edge <laughs> a little, but um, also sent me into that whole thing about tax works and that. And so if I was white is a, and I, I love if I was white because it was, it's a rant, a really good rant. And, and, um, and I, I often will say that Aboriginal artists, um, we're all angry. And, and um, to varying degrees, we're all angry and we're supposed to be. You can't live, you can't exist as a people in the context that we exist in this country and not be angry. It's, it's, it's a silly thought to think that you're not. So, um, and, and, so and, I, and, I, and, I've, and I've heard Gordon Hookie say that um, um, if, if he wasn't, if he didn't have art, visual art, as a way to express himself, his frustrations and his anger, that he would be a very angry man. And I think that's absolutely true of most Aboriginal artists who don't have a creative outlet for our anger. Yeah. So that's how If I Was White started. It's a rant and I love it. Yeah. If you read the background, and, I, and I, I was in a mood to torture people, so there's a, there's a text in the background, it's about 4,000 words, and it's a rant about um, whiteness and race privilege. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a forefront, it's really small. And, it's, and because I, and I can't even read it now, my eyes are gone on me. But, but it, the whole thing was that it would be, um, it would look like a flat gray um, color, background color behind the text. But if you go up close, it's all this, this um, ranting text, no swearing, but it's an angry rant and, uh, and people have to get up close to read it. You have to stand right up close to the work. And so you can't, it doesn't give you the opportunity to take, in, take the work in at a comfortable distance. And is that a, a, a conscious um, strategy that you've used? Um, I know that you know, this man is, this woman is, um, the, the text is quite small below images uh, and people do get drawn in. Um, but um, then you, know, you get to see their reactions to, to those texts. Is that something that, that you were thinking about? It, uh, with If I Was White, I, I was definitely. And also with, uh, with designing texts that kind of run together, they were much more abstracted um, before. And I've kind of been conscious of making sure that they're legible. It's why I use, only use a, a universal font forum. And it's also, um, they, you have to read it, but if you run the words together, people, we're, we're, we're conditioned in, we live in our, our Western society where, where our, our primary language is English. So we are conditioned to read English in a universal font because we see it everywhere and, 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 and black on white, usually black on white, we're conditioned to read. And uh, it doesn't matter what you write, you could be writing gibberish but if it looks like it's written in English, we will stop and start reading it. And so uh, the words are run together. It's, it's all condensed. I try to condense as much as I can into like an abstract form, a single abstract form, actually. And, uh, and, and that's because when you condense like this is here, when you condense it down into this kind of 
overall abstract, it grids up. And I think as, as humans who live in cities, we are attracted to grids anyway. We feel comfortable with them. And so, but, but you see grids, when you look at the way um, uh, letters are designed, there's a, there's a thing about um, when you research like the way letters are, are formed and structured, in English anyway, um, there's a thing, a thing that uh, letters should be drawn and not written. If you, you'd be aware of your actual writing and the action you're employing. And as a drawer I am, but, um, but, but we, are, we all are when, when we're writing because we still want to read what we wrote. And, we, and, and many times we want others to be able to read it too. And we want to feel like that. And so we're, we're conscious of making these, these same repetitious movements when we write. And calligraphy especially is held to these rules. But it's only those few basic forms, particularly in calligraphy. But, um, but letters, um, when you re reduce them down to their basic forms and structures, they're all gridded up. And so we're, we're attracted to that, that sort of thing. But with these words, like, with words like this, you have to stand in front of it and read the words. You've got to say them, either say them out aloud or in your mind. And that makes you remember them, walk away with them. And um, a lot of uh, your, your larger text-based works, um, I've noticed, are, are all influenced by literary works, Stephen Crane works, mm. um, uh, through um, you know, a lot of Shakespearean works as well, I remember in, in a show at the gallery. Um, how do you select those passages and, and what is it about them that resonate with you? I, I just come across them and they resonate. I mean, the reason that I, you know, besides, you know, if, if we discount the whole postmodernist approach of, you know, particularly like the, the kind of idea that these are sort of found objects and then I'm retooling them. As a black fella, everything that we say in this country just gets discounted because we're saying them. If we write it down, it's our voice, it just gets discounted. And, um, and that's, how, that's, that's, that's how I grew up and that is the, the natural state of being for you know, the, the dominant culture in this country. It, it just places a veneer of doubt over everything else. And so our words get doubted everywhere. And so I just thought, well, use this then. Use Shakespeare. But I, I, also, I also like Shakespeare. I, actually, I like Macbeth. That's my favorite thing. It's a guy's play. Yeah, has the best characters and well I like I, I, just as an aside here you know if you're going to, to get young uh, young boys schoolboys into Shakespeare you don't use Romeo and Juliet you use Macbeth it has Lady Macbeth who's like the best female character crazy but Strong, she anchors the whole thing. She's the one who made him do it. But but you have witches, you have battles, you have a, you know, this final, you know, battle that is grand. Sword fighting has got everything. 
if you want to get like 14, 15 year old boys, and I went to boys' school, so if you want to get 14, 15 year old boys into Shakespeare, that's the play you use. Uh, more than Julius Caesar. So, so that's how I got into Shakespeare, but, but through Macbeth, so it's still my favourite, and that's the one I always go back to. That and, uh, and also, um, also Edward the, the Richard III is, is, also a, is also a boy's own story. So, yeah. again, with uh, a, a, a pretty good um, uh, female role, you know. This, and this is at a time when, um, you know, uh, in popular culture and that, unless you're going to, like, um, uh, reading, unless you're reading Jane Eyre or, or, um, or, or even or Wuthering Heights or something like that, you don't get good female characters, except in Shakespeare, when you're at school anyway. So, yeah, anyway, what were we talking about now? <laughs> Sorry about that, but, but, I, but I, wanted to, um, I wanted to just, just uh, e expand on why I choose Shakespeare, particularly Macbeth. And uh, in, in, in quoting, but the Stephen Crane poem is uh, that I've I've used. It's it's called, um, and that that's that's an example of where something is intact, has existed on its own for a long time, and I have just taken it and retooled it, re recontextualized it, and um, and it takes on a completely different meaning because that play is from like 1905, um, not play, a poem called. In the desert, yeah, and I haven't changed it at all. Didn't do a thing to it. To me, it resonated. It's it was as if you're walking along a beach, you see a piece of driftwood that is in the perfect shape of a a club or a or, or a stick, a perfect walking stick, or even like a cricket bat, and it's perfect. And you pick it up, and not only perfect you know where to grab it. There's an obvious handhold on that object. You know where to grab it, you know how to swing it. And you're the one who commands it. And that's what it was like first coming across that play, uh, that, that, that poem, uh, because I knew exactly how I would uh, contextualise it. It was already there. It was the same as the toilet block on Cockatoo Island already there. Um, the poem was much nicer on first inspection, but, uh, but certainly the, the toilet, toilet block had a lot more writing in it. Yeah. Uh, do you want to quickly explain about the toilet block so people know what we're talking about? Uh, um, did, did many of you go and see um, 2008 Sydney Biennale? There's one where I had all the drawings. I had uh, uh, 12 drawings on Cockatoo Island. It was the first year that Cockatoo Island was used in the Sydney Biennale. And um, so we, I was there in January and we did a site visit uh, with Chris, Carolyn Christoph and um, Bakajiev and, um, sorry. And um, so we're walking around going, I don't even know how many locations we went to, but we spent a day there and walking into some quite dangerous built, uh, piece, parts of buildings that were all closed off for the Biennale because they're just unsafe. But we were just wandering through all these buildings and where there's no floor and you can see the water underneath and that. And so we, so we come across this toilet block 
and all the um, all the partitions and, and um, for the cubicles and that have all been taken down, and the, and there and what was left was about forty years of graffiti that you would find in toilet blocks, and this is a men's toilet block, and. Um, and so it was amazing, like tra tracing, like talking about like sherbet, ACDC, skyhooks, but also talking about um, the politics of the day, like um, unions, uh, local government, state state government, federal elections. Um, but the most horrendous um, uh, kind of mindsets around race and also around, and the most, um, some unforgivable comments are on uh, chauvinism, you know, just the sexism. I remember thinking, there's stuff written about a girl named Fiona, who must, who probably has no idea what they were saying about her, and she must be 50 or 60 by now, but I just think, man, anything goes when you're like that. But the best thing was that it was all there and, and, and clear. There was, it hard, because it's in a toilet block, hardly any of it was faded away. Um, very little of it, actually. It was a, I, I just thought it was amazing. And so I said to Carolyn, um, what's happening to this, this toilet block? And, and there was like broken windows, so there was water inside and that. And she said, this will be one of the... No, we were walking around with this woman who's from the Sydney Harbour Trust, and I said, what's happening to this? And she said, this is one of the locations that will be closed off, just closed off, boarded up. And I said, people need to see this. And, um, and she said, well, what do you... And Carolyn said, well, what do you want to do with it? I said, can I have this as my second site? So, so I did. So, um, and I remember... Um, I remember telling them that I wanted to call it Born in This Skin and uh, because that was something that um, is from a conversation I had with Richard Bell when we were talking about racism or something. It's one of the times when he wasn't ranting and, and he was kind of sitting just, you know, deep in thought and he just says, you know, we're, we're, we're just all born in this skin. And I said, we are, brother. That's right, we are. And so that, that's where the title of that, that work came from. But it was an example, like the Stephen Crane poem, where it was like a ready-made, completely intact, and resonated with me. I knew exactly what it meant, what it would do. Um, I didn't know I was going to get sued for it, but, um, but that didn't come as a complete surprise. So... So yeah, that was, a, that was the idea. Yeah, born in the skin. Yeah. It was completely intact. And, they, and I, remember them, I remember them contacting me the week before I was due to go down and they wanted to know what I wanted done with it. And I just said, nothing. And they said, are you sure? What, is there anything you want done? I said, is it still like, we, like, we, we, like it was when we saw it? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, that's it. Then. Just put my name on it. Give it a title. Yeah. Don't say Vernon's work is crap. Just say born in the skin, you know. Yeah. 
a lot of the the literary the literary works that you've quoted have been um, sort of macabre in a way as well. Um, uh, but I guess the work in the show here um, has some resonance with those literary works coming from uh, a coroner's statement as well, or, or, or the, the, the reading of, of the findings. Well, this is completely referencing what happened on Palm Island in 2004. So was this uh, a way of you know, looking at, at that situation through um, through something that was written, or was it merely a, a or, or you know, apart from that, was it more of a, an emotional um, a response to what was happening at the time? It it was a bit of um, it's certainly a, a, an emotional response, but um, so Eric, but it was more. I was kind of um, I wanted to make this. Um, as I wanted to acknowledge Erica Kyle's role in kind of those events, she's a former mayor of Palm Island at the time, and um, and you know, in in the Torman video, it's very clear that they've had no sleep. They the council had been going over the coroner's report, and then she has called a town meeting the next morning with no sleep and it's obvious that she's stood up in front of everybody. It's a beautiful day and she stood up in front of everybody and it's just, and this is how she starts, you know, there was a fall. And, um, <clears throat> and, and she, uh, she proceeds to kind of, she's, she's exhausted um, but the situation is tense and she knows it is, so everything she says is very paced. And she, she knows, she can see that everyone is on edge and, and she knows that anything can happen also, but she's trying to kind of, she's not trying to calm fears, but she's trying to just explain to people, give people some sort of explanation when they've had nothing, zero. And she's taken it upon herself to get up and, and represent all of council and, um, and anyone else who's, um, who's kind of troubled by it. And it blows up afterwards, but, um, but, but, I, I, but her, her role in, in getting up and, um, and taking on that, that load is, is enormous. And uh, and I wanted to acknowledge her, and these are her words, and they and and I don't even know how whether she's kind of thought about it exactly what she was going to say it or her delivery, but she she she, uh, she had been experienced enough to kind of put together something off the cuff. Yeah, extraordinary piece of footage, actually. I just um, wanted to ask, um, you know, you've done quite a lot of work around. You know the Palm Island incident, what into the death in custody, uh, and the aftermath of that. Um, you know, uh, what is your sort of connection to that story and that history, and what is it about it that's resonated so much with you? Well, when when you, I mean, blackfellas in Queensland, there would be no blackfellas in Queensland who don't know of Palm Island, um, in some form form 
or another. I know Richard, Richard Bell said this often, he's just said in some form or another, Blackfellas in Queensland, we all have a connection to Palm Island. But, um, but for me, we grew up uh, with Palm Island, with Palm Island, the stories of Palm Island being somewhere where my family is from. Uh, my family is not actually from there. My grandmother was sent there as a young girl. Her whole family was. And, um, and my grandfather uh, was sent there as a young man. And, um, and Palm Island has a horrible history, but, um, but, but my grandmother, she was... I, I, I've said in the past that I describe her as someone who had Catholicism beaten into her. And that wouldn't be, you know, a unique story. But, uh, but she never ever said anything bad about Palm Island. She said once, we're sitting around the table with my mum, my mum who was born on Palm Island, and we were sitting around the table and my, my nana just goes, you know, they should bring back curfews. You know, with all these young kids, they run the streets and everything, they should bring back curfews. Mum just said, my mum said to my nana, she just goes, Mum, you can't say things like that anymore. But you get it, I, got, I understood her thinking though, you know. When, when you have absolute control over people's lives, there is no room to misbehave because the punishments are severe. You know, Palm Island is a place where um, if you did, did or said something wrong, um, you got sent there for punishment. And I mean anything wrong. People used to get punished on Palm, like there are stories of um, girls being stripped for laughing. You know, and this sort of thing. Yeah. So, but but that's it's 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 my family's history. I've got lots of cousins on both sides of my family. My dad's got lots of cousins on Palm Palm as well. Uh, not as many as my mum. My mum's got just heaps and heaps of cousins there. I mean, yeah, I think almost every Murray Bomber family has some connection to Palm. Um, you know, my grandfather's brother was sent there for asking for wages for the work that he was doing. Um, yeah, and um, uh, I guess you know a lot of people in our family count ourselves lucky because the policy changed um, in the two years between my grand my my grandfather's brother and my grandfather asking for wages, and instead they just kicked him off the mission, and um, he had to live in the tips in in the South Burnet. Um, but we we weren't sent there for that reason. <laughs> that 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 was that was you know a lot of the family considered themselves lucky. Um, although, you know, we, we love our palm cousins and we love the place, but, you know, being sent there was um, terrible. But I guess with, with the work that you've done and, and the tall man video and, and, and the other works that have gone with it, um, uh, there's a sense that, you know, it could have been any one of us, any one of our families as well. I think that's something that's really resonated with a lot of black followers anyway around the work. Is that something that, that, that's influenced the way that you look at that situation? The tall man video, there's a, there's a universality about it, undeniably. There's a, it's a human story, it's, it's a story about what it, what it means to be human. 
And it's a story about how how you how a um, a system can engineer a denial of humanity. That's that's the underlying themes. It's what we're seeing in um, the West Bank right now with the Israelis bombarding Palestine the way they are. And and you know. Just as an aside, I'm sitting in my car listening to the radio and then they have this interview with this, um, some guy from the army who, there's a, there's a report done on, um, on the conflict, the Israeli-Palestine conflict, the latest blow up where they're just shelling these people, right? And now the report has shown, and they didn't actually go to Palestine, they went to Israel to actually witness the shelling. And, uh, and there's the, they published a report where the, uh, the death toll, the Palestinian death toll, has shown 69% um, civilian casualties. 69%. Now, that's not the shocking part. The shocking part is when on the radio, this person is being, and this person has gone there and been involved in running a report. The shocking part is, the interviewer says, don't you think it's bad for Australia to support a war where the casualty rate is 69% civilian? And without blinking, he says, look, we spoke to people on the ground we spoke to the Israelis, we spoke to people who know, and if not for their restraint, the, ca the civilian casualties could be much higher. And I just said, okay, absolutely no surprises here whatsoever. Not in, not in this country. And I guess, Earlier, you, you talked about you know communication. You know that's what you know, artists are in the game for. Or at least you're you're in the game for, um, and a lot of your work is, um, I guess, about um, uh, a lot of the quotes anyway show a, a, an almost lack of um, beauty, a lack of humanity, in a sense. Um, what? Are you trying to communicate to the people that are, are, are looking at the works? What do you want them to take away? I, I remember um, I did a talk with um, I'd done a couple of talks in Cairns for at forums and that for Cairns Art Fair, and my brother was along. My old, I have an older brother and um, who I regard very highly, and and well, we were sitting down and we talk about a lot of. Um, you know, just whatever adults talk about when we kind of, you know, exercise our critical consciousness, and um, and and he uh, he says, you know, why do you um, re repeat yourself? Why, why do you why do you go over the same ground over and over? And I just said, I just said because the level of denial in audiences in society is so high in this country that we have to say things 10 times more. We have, to, we have to say things 10 times a week 
every month of the year for 10 years before something happens. You know, and, uh, and our, it's, it's um, when I'm, I'm a big believer in, in words, but also not wasting words. And so you choose your words and you choose a time to use them. And so when I'm using quotes, um, this is quite long. Usually, if I have, a, have something in mind that I want to say, that something that I come across something that, that you know crystallizes what I want to say, then um, sometimes I will use part of it and, and know that, that it's, 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 it's at the gist of what I'm wanting to say, just a couple of lines. And, um, and then if people want to know the rest of it, they can go look it up themselves. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but it, a lot of the sentiments that, that I express in the text works bear repeating, oftentimes in several, uh, several works, several pieces of text. They, they have to, there's a relationship, there's a disc, already an inherent discourse in them anyway, because I'm making them. And, uh, and the discourse is provided by me that, that run um, in conjunction with everything else that I make. So that's already there. So when I pick something out of the blue, it already slots into that. That whole kind of, the whole paradigm of my practice, it already fits. Like I've always said that any portrait will go with any text work. I've always said that. It's not by design, it's just that with, within my thought processes, they all go together. And you can throw them all together. And um, so, so I, I've, I've, I've always been able to kind of think, well, you know, a lot of these works, they don't have to be pretty. They don't have to gloss over anything. It's why the portraits have been stripped of their veneer of romanticism, of what is the ideal for an Aboriginal portrait. You know, I'm not interested in the naval savage. I'm not interested in the primitive. I don't know why we should be. I don't know why anyone is, honestly, in art. It's crazy. Yeah. So I, I, I very much believe in not mincing your words. I believe in, in an economy of use, particularly when I'm presenting them in, as, as text works. Mm. And um, you also spoke earlier about um, <coughs> permission that, uh, and mentioned Tracy Moffat's work, um, Kevin, Kevin Gilbert's influence uh, and Gordon Bennett. Is that something that was important to you and is it something that you see yourself as um, doing as well, uh, sort of building on that space? Um, I, I don't know. Um, hopefully, hopefully, um, I, 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 it doesn't bother me if um, people want to copy my work or, or um, mimic it or be inspired by it. Um, but um, hopefully I can give people permission to kind of try things out. You know, I, I just think 
you know, we're, we're in an era in art where ideas predominate. The problem with that is that um, often people will try out their ideas in the most bizarre ways and the most useless ways. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge to kind of match, match a relevant idea with a visual that's also relevant, has something to it. You know, really good conceptual artists will design several, you know, they'll scaffold several entry points into the work. The bad ones are the works you stand in front of and you could be there for hours. And I like conceptual art, but I, I don't want it to be a labyrinth. You know, I, I, wanna, I want something in it to give, I want a, there to be some entry into the work. There's so much work that I see, I just walk past and just think, you know. For me, it's like, I, I love going to the um, graduate shows in the art schools. So you go there and there's, once you get past all the selfies, and when I say selfies, it's the really big paintings of themselves yeah. in the painting exhibitions. A lot of them. It's crazy. But this is the this is the world we live in, right? So, yeah, so, so anyway, once you get past them, you get into the 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 conceptual works. But a lot of works, I just walk past because it's clear that, that that person lives in their own world and, uh, and, and hasn't thought about how their work is going to be read at all. So, it, anyway, I, should, I shouldn't go on, actually. Yeah, the selfies, it's something. Uh, I'm talking you know, really, really big paintings <laughs> and drawings of themselves from their phone. You know? They take a picture of, of themselves and they think, this will look great wall-sized. <laughs> Any of you who are thinking of it, don't. Not a bad, it's not a good idea. You know, it's not like I have never done a self-portrait of myself. I've done like three. But I've done about a hundred portraits, serious portraits. And only three of them are of me. Let's not have it the other way around. So, you know, and I'm interesting. It's not like I don't make a good subject. <laughs> but I find everybody else interesting too. So, what's, what's that thing? Um, I saw a t-shirt, it's a text work, and it just said, it's talking about social media and, and um, the YouTube generation, I guess. And it just says, just because it's happening to you doesn't make it interesting. <laughs> it just summed it up for me, but I can tell you now, at the end of this year, I'll go to the graduate shows at QUT and QCA, and there'll be selfies there. That's all we should say about that for tonight. 
we'd, we'd like to open it up to the floor if anybody has any questions they, they, they're willing to ask. Like a diptych. Um, I, I've I've had um, I've exhibited drawings alongside text works before. Yeah, not not. Um, I actually did a whole um, in my computer. You know, Photoshop uh, text works and, and and drawings up against each other to see how they look and do several of them, different combinations. They look awesome, <laughs> but um, but but I but I have um, exhibited um, portraits alongside text, yeah, next to each other before. Yeah, I guess the uh, one of the main ones was here as well in the the cart chant, which had the surfboards and the, the portraits on the back with the text works. So yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that all came together? Yeah. Um, so when uh, the previous director Robert. Um, took over here, Robert Leonard. Um, we had a studio in, in the city here, Proper Now did, and we did a whole lot of work there. But, I, but Robert comes to visit and, and he just says, you know, Vernon, we'd like to know if you're interested in having a show and, and do you have any good ideas? And I just say, oh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. It's about surfboards. And, you know, it's a response to Cronulla and, um, and Palm Island. And uh, because People want to separate the two, but they're, they're, they're entwined. They're both beach communities. They happened almost exactly a year apart. Palm Island 2004 Christmas time, just before Christmas, and Cronulla just before Christmas the following year, 2005. They're both what could be called race riots. And um, the... Uh, there's two differences between the two riots. One of them, the police response was almost immediate and brutal. And at the other one, there was alcohol. So you can decide which was which. And the other, but the other similarity, both beach communities. And Australia has a very, very specific, narrow idea of what the beach means and is to its national identity. And uh, that's the whole reason Cronulla happened. Yeah. And, and I guess the, the, the opposite side of those boards have the, the, the rainforest shield designed as well. Yeah. Is that in response to that idea of the, the beach as a one? I don't know if anyone remembers. It was 2007, so as you walked, it was that, that room over there, the front room, and so as you walked in, what you saw was, shield, or was surfboard suspended in, in the room in a staggered formation, but very, very colourful shields shield designs on the boards, on the decks. And the, the walls were covered in um, text, vinyl text. 
And uh, as you walk through the boards, so it was a room about identity, but it was also a room about surfing and the beach. It was a room about Aboriginal identity. And, um, and as you walk through the, through, the, through the boards to the back of the room, when you turn around, the boards are all covered in black and white um, portraits. So what you see then, is the room is black and white. Not only black and white, but you see portraits suspended in the space with, with text, surrounded by text. Yeah. But it was that whole idea of um, you walk in and there is this, and the boards are so colourful that they are the whole room. You could be forgiven for not seeing the text works when you first walk in. But when you go to the back of the room when the boards turn grey, um, the text works jump out. They should because they're black on white walls. And, um, and that was the whole point of that, that visual like that, is that um, suddenly uh, the whole room takes on a different feel. And, yeah, and that's, that, that's the front room. So what, else, what, what went with that exhibition was in, in this room here was the video work, was the Kent Champ video work. And so in the first room you got um, all of the references for the video and then vice versa. So, and also in the video we, we had um, two surfboards that we used in the filming that were wrapped in barbed wire. And they, were, they, they reference a lot of what the text works say as well. So, yeah. Um, can you tell us what you're going to um, well, taking the uh, the tall man video, and we're also um, uh, going to be installing uh, five large paintings, the brutalities paintings from my last exhibition in Brisbane here, from December last year. So they're quite quite big paintings. They're actually half the size of this. So so yeah, quite quite portraits. These are kind of furious faces that are the brutalizer. So we're taking those because um, the works, my, my, um, I wanted to, in, um, I had a conversation with Carolyn about um, this year is the 100 year anniversary of the Armenian massacres. So, um, I, I uh, yeah, so I, I, I wanted to um, kind of say something to that because um, in Turkey uh, there's absolute denial of, of it ever happening. And so that's something we're very familiar with here as blackfellas, the whole idea of denial and absolute denial. And, uh, and I, I just thought, well, there's absolute resonance here. And so the tall man, hopefully... Um, and the thing about the tall man video too is um, we uh, uh, have arranged subtitles for the work, for the video. So there are subtitles that are going to play in Turkish, in Armenian, and Kurdish, not English. And um, it's a conversation I had with Carol and she said, you know, you don't have to have subtitles. I said, no, no, there's a purpose to the subtitles. There's also a purpose to excluding English from the subtitles as well. That's, there's a point to that. So, so, that's, uh, so we're taking 
taking that. And um, we just got the specs for it, it'll be um, amazing. So. so that's what we're taking. And I'm also thinking about doing a, a couple of large, very large drawings um, of lynchings. There's, there's two things to this question. Now, I've had a question like this before lots of times from blackfellas and whitefellas, mostly whitefellas actually, where they say, well, you know, um, how do you see a way out? Well, what, what, what do you think um, we can do? Is there change in this society? Now, the first part of the, my response is, that is not a question for blackfellas. We are not the problem. It's a, it's a question for whitefellas. How do you think, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, the, the history of negotiation and, um, and engagement with Aboriginal communities in this country has consisted of um, a hand-picked um, group of blackfellas, however qualified or suitable, um, they will offer up their opinion and the government says, that's a really good opinion, I can see how that works, but I think we'll go the other way. And that's the history of white-black engagement in this country, that's it. It's a history of wrong decisions. And so at every turn, you'll have this, this, you know, an entity that is, you know, you point at it and say, that's Aboriginal ideas going on there, very good ones. And then they'll say, well, what if we give you two ideas? And then the government says, we looked at both of them, we'll think we'll go the other way. We came up with a third one, we'll think we'll go for that. That's the history of black-white engagement here. Uh, make no mistake, it's happening right now with the whole Recognise campaign. Um, I, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I don't agree with it anyway, so. Um, because, I, I don't agree with it, but, um, but yeah, that's, it's not a question for, for blackfellas to answer. The only thing I can, I can say is that I think this should happen, this should happen, this should happen, and then this country will say, that's a good idea, I think we'll go the other way. So, I think whitefellas should put together a specialised group of people, they should bring a few options to us. Maybe we'll pick one. <laughs> or we might go the other way. Yeah. So I have no answer for you, brother. No answer for you. Particularly since the biggest obstacle that we have to conquer is the level of denial. Now, that's the first, that's the largest biggest obstacle to conquer. And it's not just me, it's all of us. Now, um, all I know, what I know for sure, absolutely, is that this country is not capable of conquering its level of denial.
It can't do it. And I don't know when it will. Well, it's de de determined by, um, you know, did it, did, how many of you guys watched um, Q&A on Monday? So, you know, we, that was about how, how influential Magna Carta has been on Australian culture. It's pretty awesome, actually, because it was good to see those two women going head to head. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, but um, so the classic case that we've had in this country is the kind of, you could say Terra Nullius was defeated, but this country denies it, denies the defeat of Terra Nullius. We know that it denies the defeat of Terra Nullius because straight after the Mabo decision, um, the Native Title Act was constructed. So blackfellas thought, oh, you know, Terra Nullius is defeated with Mabo, Mabo number two, and uh, so it must mean that we can do A, B, C, D and E all within property law in this country. Right? And so blackfellas say, well, we must be able to do this, this, this and this. And the white fellas say, yes, those are good ideas, but we think we'll go the other way. We will take your ideas on board and we will give you, we are giving you the Native Title Act, where we will, through the goodness of our own hearts and our own you know, magnificence, uh, we will channel all of your claims through the Native Title Act. We're not doing this to free up our own property law courts. No, no. We are helping you, not ourselves, you. If they were allowed to go through property law, normal channels, they wouldn't take 15 to 20 years to be resolved like they currently do. Yeah, went the other way. That's how we know. We try, we try again and again to engage in the, you know, the accepted avenues of resolution and even, even the victories get turned around. Even the Mabo decision came with so many caveats that, that any kind of um, workable uh, resolution from that de decision is not applicable on the mainland. You know? And, and so you can say this over and over again, and, but the whitefellas will say, no, no, it was a good thing for you. That's why we have a Mabo day. So I guess you're at, at, at the end of, of that, your um, work, how do you see that fitting within you know, the entire political uh, dynamic? What, what uh, other than the obvious, is it saying to people who are, who are looking at it? Ah, that's a, that's a loaded question. Um, look, look at, at the end of the day, 
I, 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 I just think, you know, for myself, I hope I've had a worthwhile practice. But at the end of the day, um, I, I know that um, my work encompasses a set of skills too that I've worked hard developing. You know, my, my, all of my work is underpinned by, um, you know, processes that I've developed over a long period of time, particularly in my drawings. You know, it's not like I'm just pulling these ideas and then, and then dressing them up with paper cutouts. You know, I, I believe that, that ideas absolutely, in art, absolutely benefit from hard discipline. Absolutely. You know, why would you become a photographer and not understand intimately the photographic process? Not understand how lenses work? Why, why would you do that? But people seem to think that you don't need to draw to make art. And make no mistake, drawing is the fastest way of translating your ideas into something you can hold up in front of someone and show them this is what I got in mind. It's the fastest, easiest way to do it. Yeah. You, you must develop hard, hard skills. Would you become a writer and not know how to construct a sentence? Not just to construct a sentence well, but be able to construct the same sentence two or three different ways. It would be crazy. You tell me a writer who would say, I want to be a well-known writer, but don't really want to know how to spell. Don't really want to know how to construct sentences and what's the, what's the best way to use words intelligently. But people think they don't need to learn the tools. It's crazy talk. But anyway, that's just me. I, I could be wrong. I oftentimes have been because there's a lot of work that is produced by artists who are you know, not very clever but famous and rich. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but, but, I, but that's, that's, what I, that's what I think of my own practice. I, I know that my practice is underpinned by due diligence in terms of developing a sure hand and a sure eye and, and judgment. And um, at the end of the day, I hope that's something that people can point at and say, he worked really hard in um, bringing his, his, um, his, his ideas. Like I've always said, you know, when we're, when we're artists, we're in the business of making our ideas real, something that you can point at and say, that's an idea there and this is the form that it comes in. And, but I, but I, I like the idea of um, nicely finished work there's a design aesthetic that I, I build into my work that I enjoy and there's a pleasure that I have in finishing an artwork well and, um, and calling an end to it, you know. And I, I like that. I like the idea that, you know, you can spend hours and hours and hours on a drawing and then you get over the hump of it and you know you're on the home stretch and, and you can say, I've got... You ring someone up and say, mate, I'll meet you for tea. We can go for a coffee in three hours because I'm almost finished this drawing. That's the sort of, you know, those, those sort of things, little things, you know. 
But, um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I hope, hope people will see that the ideas that I, I put into my, my works that, that, that run through them have, a, um, have an equal standing with the visual. You know, I hope my, my skills kind of serve the ideas as well as they serve, you know, my visual sensibilities as well. Yeah. On that note, it would be great to, to, um, to, to conclude the conversation. So please um, thank Vernon for spending so much time. And, and of course, thank you, Bruce. Yeah. <laughs>